Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists with a new episode of Global Caveat. Today's episode is going to get the Heine lab bench to talk about the differences in the types of diabetes and how lifestyle and policies play a role in management and prevention. But first, we want to thank all of our supporters who make Global Caveat possible. Global Caveat is a listener-supported podcast, which means we appreciate any amount or form of support you can give us. We do have a Patreon page on our website, and just for $1, 3 or $5 a month, you can become a patron. We have cute names for them too, like if you donate $1 a month, you're an outbreak, but if you donate $3 a month, you're an epidemic, and you can even suggest future guests for our show. If you like what we do and you love our guests, because I know I do, please leave us a review, subscribe, and share the knowledge. And speaking of knowledge, let's get up close and personal with diabetes. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Krishana Sankar, a diabetes PhD research fellow. Uh, Hi, Krish. So before we get started, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and where listeners can reach you? if they want to reach out to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Susanna and Diana. I got that correct, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yeah, so my name is Krishana, and um, if people want to reach out to me, they can reach me on Instagram. My handle there is at Beyond the Ivory Tower, and on uh, Twitter, it's at Krishana Sankar. So that's uh, my full name altogether on Twitter. Okay, and what do you do? So I am a diabetes researcher. I'm currently a doctoral fellow at the University of Toronto, and I'm conducting diabetes research, uh, basic diabetes research. So my research isn't uh, clinically related. It's research that's done at the bench using cell line models and animal models. Okay. Then how did you get into that? Like, what made you go into studying diabetes? What were you doing before you got into the fellowship? So before diabetes, I was actually hoping to do uh, cardio-related research. So I started uh, getting ready for that from third year of undergrad. For some reason, I was always really interested in the heart. I don't know why. I really don't know if it was just because when I was younger, I was like, oh, it would be cool to be a doctor of the heart. I don't don't know why. It's it's kind of weird and cheesy. Uh, So I actually started getting myself prepared for that. Uh, I took several cardiac physiology type courses, um, uh, cardio related like pathology courses, and I started to interview at some labs that did heart related research. And so during the interview process for grad school, I ended up coming across the lab that I'm going to be leaving soon. just by chance, and it was more because it was in the building that I was doing my last, um, my fourth year project in. Now, I really loved my building. Uh, The building was full of glass and light was always coming in. And I thought, well, if I'm gonna be doing this for a long time, it was important for me to be in an environment that I really enjoyed being in. Yes. And um, yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. I know sometimes I talk to people about this story And I I feel like it's kind of weird, but it's the truth, right? Like one of my major factors and and reasons for being in the lab I'm in was the location of the lab. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And secondly, uh, after interviewing, I thought that, um, you know, it seemed like my professor was quite young at the time. And so it seemed like, oh, he was all really cool and hip and was getting <laughs> along with everyone. Um, and the lab manager was really nice. So the only thing about this lab, though, it had nothing to do with the heart. Um, and it just so happened that they were doing research that was related to diabetes, or at least we can um, always connect it back to diabetes. And what I thought was cool about the project wasn't necessarily that what, that it was about diabetes, but more because it involved engineering. And so it was a mixture of biology and engineering, and I have no engineering background, but I thought it would be very interesting to learn something new um, and then put myself in a position to be very marketable when I was finished. Mm. And so that's actually how I ended up in a diabetes-related lab. And how long have you been at the lab? So I've been at the lab for six years, and I took some time off uh, in between to do an internship um, for a pharmaceutical company. And so that was, uh, that was actually a really great year. I learned a lot, and I was really happy that I got that uh, opportunity and experience to do that internship outside of academia. Wow, that's interesting. Um, before asking questions about diabetes specifically, or a little bit more towards diabetes, um, you mentioned that you wanted originally or you were interested in becoming a doctor of the heart, so like a cardiologist, but then you ended up going into research. Were you pre-med? Were you always interested in doing research? Or were you like somewhere in between trying to decide between medical school and becoming more of like the academic scholar? How did you decide that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so actually, I, I think from a really young age, I always wanted to do medicine. And that was because that was the only thing uh, that we knew we could get a career in within science. Um, and I'm speaking, I'm speaking, coming from um, an immigrant's perspective. Mm. Um, so I'm originally from Guyana, which is in South America. And back there, there's no research being done, or at least none that, you know, anyone knew about. Uh, we weren't exposed to research. We didn't know what research was. Mm. And so if you were interested in science, you would just naturally become a doctor and like an MD doctor, a medical doctor and not a PhD doctor. And so from a really young age, I thought, oh, I'd be like an MD. I came to Canada and I had to do grade 12 over here. And then from that, uh, I started university. Now in first year university, at uh, the University of Toronto, um, at my campus in downtown Toronto, the class sizes are massive. And so I remember my first year biology course, Bio 150. Um, so if there are any U of D people listening to this, they'll know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, the lecture hall was our convocation hall, and it's, you know, it's seated about a thousand students. So it was massive. Oh my gosh. And so you can imagine <laughs> the experience walking into that class as one of your first classes coming from high school to university. It was kind of overwhelming. Um, and then one of the first things the professor tells you is, um, so, you know, like 90% of you wants to go to med school. And if you look around, like, you know, 10% of you are probably going to get in. <laughs> Which means 90% of you won't. We're like, okay, this is a great way to start my university career. <laughs> uh, 
So I was like, um, all right, well, you know, that made me feel some kind of way. <laughs> and, um, but interestingly enough, I, so one of my uh, colleagues I met there was also from my home country and he was doing graduate school and I had no idea what graduate school was. So one day we were talking about, you know, what it was that I wanted to do in the future. And he mentioned to me, he's like, oh, you know, you can do research. And I'm like, oh, what is research? And then he started to explain to me what it was all about and the fact that he was doing, a, you know, graduate school. And he told me, you know, if you are interested in this, uh, you can start to look into doing either volunteering or finding courses um, or work studies through our university to get some experience in the lab and see if you like what research was about. And that's actually where my journey started. Uh, so from that, I was very interested to learn. I'm like, oh, what is this? It sounds interesting. I mean, from a young age, um, I always played with like little science kits in my room and, you know, mm. making like pH, you know, pH indicators from cabbage <laughs> juice. I don't know if you guys did that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so things like that. And I'm like, oh, this sounds really cool. It's up my alley. So, um, yeah, I applied second year summer to like a million labs. I finally got into one that was not on my campus, but it was um, at the urban campus for U of T. And uh, that's where I started in an insect physiology lab. Um, wow. Doing, yeah, doing like lab, you know, lab maintenance and just like washing glassware and, you know, feeding the insects and, you know, like clearing their waste. I'm like, oh, this is great. Yeah, not really, but it's a start. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's where I started and then from there it um, moved on to like a research project for that lab and then after that I was like okay this is good experience but I don't want to like study insects so I looked on and um, from there I went to a mouse stem cell lab and then from there I went on to a human stem cell lab and the human stem cell lab was the last lab where I was in the like the amazing building I was in and then that's what then got me to doing the interview for the diabetes lab that I'm in now. So yeah, that's a bit of my journey. Yeah. That's a lot of lab experience. Yeah. Yeah, I've got a lot of lab experience. So I guess yeah, I didn't completely answer your question, but to answer your question, it did start out as wanting to be an MD, but from from my first starting from my lab experiences that I had, I just was just like, you know, I was in love with it. Mm -hmm. I never really thought about med school after that. <laughs> like after going through all the different labs I went into, I just thought it was so much fun. Um, I loved, you know, always having to learn something new and always learning new techniques and new methods and then applying them and then looking for an answer no one else knew about, you know, mm -hmm. like that whole, you know, the, the, the feeling of discovery and I'm the first one to discover this or thinking about a question that, you know, and, and working on it for myself. I really love that about it. So I never actually looked back at med school, interestingly enough, and I just kept going. And then after undergrad, the natural step for me, I guess, was just graduate school. I just wanted to do more research. Yeah. yeah. Speaking of research, can we talk a little bit more about your diabetes research? Because you've been doing that for six years now, right? Right. And you mentioned you don't do clinical. Um, right. So I am completely ignorant. Like, what does that mean? Can you explain, like, how, I guess, explain your work <laughs> so that um, I understand <laughs> what you do? <laughs> yeah, sure. I was like, hmm, should I do, like, a three-minute thesis version of this? <laughs> uh, so when I say I'm not doing clinical work, so clinical work means... Um, for example, work 
where you're involved with patients, Mm -hmm. right? So you're actually like working with patients and patient data. Um, I don't do that. I'm at the basic science level where we're at the bench and we're working with animal models and cell lines and petri dishes. And so my work in particular, uh, so um, maybe I'll give a little bit of background about diabetes. Um, yeah, what is diabetes? For you guys too, yeah. <laughs> is that, so it is one of the most prevalent diseases in the world, right? Like mm-hmm. approximately 322 million people worldwide have it. Um, and what I've noticed is a lot of people tend not to take it so seriously. And I think that is because of this misconception that, oh, you know, we've seen so many people living with it. So, you know, it can't be that bad. It's maybe not that serious, right? And so many people have it. Uh, But up until 1921, when it was insulin was actually discovered for people with diabetes, people who had diabetes prior to that were dying at at super young ages, right? So if you had type one, for example, you know, kids wouldn't live past, say, the age of 12 or something. And if you were developing type 2, depending on when you developed it, you wouldn't be living, you know, years past that. So it's an extremely dangerous disease. Um, I quite honestly don't think it gets um, all the exposure I think it deserves. And uh, one of, so I mentioned insulin. So insulin was actually discovered here in Toronto at the University of Toronto. So I am at the place where oh. it was discovered, which is pretty cool. Yeah, that's really yeah, cool. So we've got a lot of rich history with that. Um, and uh, it was discovered by Sir Frederick Banting, and his birthday is November 14th. And so that's why every November 14th, we celebrate World, World Diabetes Day. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So one of the things with diabetes, I mean, there are three different uh, types of diabetes. They're categorized like that. And so type 1 is when your body attacks its own cells. So that's an autoimmune disease. And 10% of the diabetic population has type 1. And type 2 is when your body is not making enough insulin or it can't use the insulin properly. And of course, about you know 90 or so percent of the population has that. And then type 3 is usually women who develop diabetes during uh, pregnancy. So that's gestational diabetes. And sometimes, most times that can go away. It's temporary, but that also... Uh, depends on your lifestyle and eating habits. Um, so my focus is mostly looking at treatment for type 1 diabetes. So those people with type 1 diabetes, like I mentioned, it's an autoimmune disease. So basically your body is attacking your insulin-making cells, which are the beta cells. And these beta cells are actually in a, they're found in the pancreas. And so the pancreas, if you imagine it, it's just like a huge blob. And then within the pancreas, many different cell types, they're usually these ball ball of cells, and those are called the islets of Langerhans. And then if you go one layer deeper, in the islets of Langerhans are these beta cells. So it's pancreas, islets, and then beta cells. And so the beta cells are the ones that are responsible for releasing the insulin, and insulin is responsible for regulating the blood, your blood sugar levels. So what happens with people who have type 1 diabetes is because their bodies are attacking their beta cells, they have no insulin, they can't survive without injecting themselves with insulin on a daily basis. 
One of the scary things with that, however, is because, you know, you're not, your body isn't regulating its own insulin, is that sometimes during the nights, especially, someone can take a shot of insulin, they go to sleep at night, and their body's not regulating the insulin properly, they can actually get too low. Their blood sugar levels can actually go too low to the point oh, they can wow. fall into a coma when they're sleeping. And so some people have died because of that. And so we call this hypoglycemia. And um, so that is a real dangerous concern for people who have type 1. And that's because they cannot, um, they cannot regulate their, you know, their own insulin um, on their own through their bodies. So some people who are at a really severe stage and level where their kidneys have started shutting down because of the disease, they started to do what was a pancreas plus a kidney transplant. They would do that together. So that's originally what they were doing. The problem with that was that it was super invasive. Um, lots of complications can come from that uh, surgery. And so they started looking at it and saying, okay, well, you know, maybe we don't need to put the whole pancreas in. Maybe we can just put the ball of cells that are actually responsible for the insulin mm -hmm. in. And so they started looking at islet transplantation. So instead of the whole pancreas, now we're going to the islets. Yeah. So with the islet transplantation, it's a far less invasive treatment. It's, it's like an outpatient treatment where people can go into the hospital. You know, they just, uh, you know, inject you into your portal vein from your liver and um, just squirt some islets in there. And, uh, you know, within a few hours, you're out. And is so that, that was like pretty mainstream, though, or is it is the whole liver pancreas transplant still ongoing in some places? Yeah, so they still do that procedure, but not as much as before, because they're slowly trying to come over more to the islet transplantation. Okay, um, that's being done more and more. Um, but of course, it was only until I would say 2000. So within in the year of 2000, uh, Dr. Alan Shapiro, he's in the University of Alberta, he was able to make the islet transplantation procedure more effective. Mm. So before that, you know, that you'd have them, uh, so healthcare practitioners putting in islets into people with um, type 1 diabetes. And then in the beginning, you know, it was okay, it was so-so, but then of course you have, you know, people will need to be on certain drugs for that. And, um, but they have um, an immune problem, right? Yeah. So um, having an autoimmune um, disease. So that led to certain complications. And eventually he was able to make a certain cocktail of drugs whereby it um, avoided uh, other side effects and prolonged the if efficiency and efficacy of the other transplantation. So that was going along well. But of course, like everything else, you know, there, there are always issues. So one of the main issues with that is that if you think about it, I was telling you, we put the islets um, into a portal vein. So we're not actually putting islets into the person's pancreas. We're putting it into another site. Mm -hmm. um, and so in the pancreas, you know, the islets will see a certain level of oxygen. But in this vein, they're actually seeing less oxygen. So they're under like a more a hypoxic environment or, or an oxygen stressed environment. So that's one thing. And another thing because of that is they recognized that the islets weren't making proper connections with the patient's bodies. So, you know, you'll take an islet out of 
you know, a donor and put it to, into a recipient, obviously they need to meet blood connections. Otherwise, you know, insulin will be released, but where is it going, right? So that's where my project comes in. And so the main thing that I've been doing is working on trying to get the islets to start to prepare them for this transplantation site where there's low oxygen and also to prepare them to start making these connections into the patient or into the recipient. And I've been doing that using biology and engineering techniques. Um, and so it's, it's been pretty it's been pretty good so far. It's been, I would say, pretty cool. Um, but I've had some significantly positive um, results with it so far when comparing, you know, islets the way that they normally culture them before they would transplant them versus the, the method that I'm using. So the, meta, the method that I'm using uh, is called, um, I'm using a microfluidic device. So basically it's a device at a micro scale and um, I put my islets in there and I house them in there and I treat them with the same media that they normally treat them with. And I'm trying to coax the endothelial cells or the blood vessels to stay alive for a longer period of time so that when they go for transplantation, they'll make better connections. And then I also use something to prepare them for the low oxygen level so they'll be ready for when they get into that um, patient's body. So what... Why can't you just take the islet cells and put it directly in the pancreas? Yeah, so that, I mean, that's a question everyone <laughs> wants to know. It's like, why does this have to be so complicated? Um, well, that's because uh, that requires you opening up the pancreas to put it in. Um, it, the pancreas is an exceptionally fussy and difficult organ. I've often joked with friends, well, maybe not joked, but I'm serious then. <laughs> I don't think I ever want to work with a pancreas again. <laughs> um, pancreases are very, very finicky and difficult organs to work with. Um, it's not like a whole solid organ, like a heart, um, you know, or your liver or, um, you know, or your kidneys, you know, those organs are solid. Your pancreas is, is more of like a meshy network. Um, and so it's, it would be very difficult to actually inject those islets into the pancreas without puncturing it and causing severe damage to it. And then for it to make the appropriate reconnections in the pancreas is also very, very difficult as well. And so for that reason is why they started, um, scientists have started looking at different, uh, transplantation sites, you know, which ones would be the best. And so far using that, uh, vein, so the liver vein has been the most promising site so far. And so that's why they've used it uh, in the islet transplantation process. Okay. Fascinating. Yeah. I learned so much in the past like five minutes. <laughs> I, know. I know. I was like, okay, I'm talking a lot. I know. I hope it's not <laughs> information <laughs> overload. It's okay. It's the good kind of information overload. <laughs> yeah. Fine. And you're very good at explaining it um, well. It, like, it doesn't feel too complicated. Okay, good. Yeah, yeah, once it's not like too complicated and you know, you can get the big picture of it, then sure. that's that would that's success for me. <laughs> yeah. I appreciate that. I mean I think it's interesting because like I know like I know some people with diabetes and I think they all have diabetes type two. And I don't think I ever really understood what type one was until you started like explaining more what the research is that you're doing in particular. Like mm -hmm. I've like read about it, but I never really understood. So Oh, yeah. okay, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's very interesting, and it is very different from type 2, and I mean, I guess this is a good place to just say this, but what I've noticed, um, 
And it's probably because of that lack of understanding, and I would say a bit of ignorance, is that a lot of people with diabetes, whether it's type 1 or type 2, they get a lot of backlash uh, from the, you know, the rest of the population who mm-hmm. don't understand it. Because a lot, of, a huge myth um, is that, you know, oh, you, if you eat too much sugar, you'll get diabetes, right? Because it's known as the sugar disease. I get it. Fine. And, we, you know, we all should be careful and, and cognizant of how much um, sugar we consume. Fine. But that's, you know, that's not the only or the main reason, right? Like there's a huge genetic component to type 2 diabetes as well. And um, of course, it has to do with your diet, but it's not just sugar. A lot of it is actually also fat and bad fats, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, I don't think, recognize that fatty foods actually do a lot more harm than they think. And it actually relates back to diabetes, even more so sometimes than sugar itself. So it's not just all about, oh, you know, you're eating sugary candies and sugary sweets, but it's also eating really fatty, like, foods, you know, like fatty burgers, fatty fries, you know, whatever foods have the really bad, you know, saturated fats, um, that, that's where a lot of the, a lot of that contributes to people getting type 2 diabetes So as well. a lot of the really good food is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly right, like, Everything that tastes good is bad for you. <laughs> I feel like that can be applied to a lot of things. <laughs> Not just food. When you yeah. said fries, I'm yeah. like, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, you can make yourself some sweet potato fries. To me, it's not the same, but, you know. The same. They're still delicious, just not the same. <laughs> They're still good, but it's just not the same. <laughs> so you said a, big, a huge component is genetic. Yes, that's also genetic. Okay, so then I'm wondering because... In public health, you know, we talk about diseases and disease prevention. Mm-hmm. We talk about modifying behaviors to prevent diseases if you're at risk for something. So yeah. let's say in my family, we have a history of diabetes, which means I'm probably at risk for getting diabetes. How much of that genetic component outweighs the more environmental factors and like your behavioral factors? Yeah, that's also a very good question. And the question that is constantly being discussed uh, within the field. And so what I would say is, I mean, the genetic portion of it plays a huge role. And what increases the likelihood of you actually getting it from genetics, even despite, say, um, modifying lifestyle um, and, and eating behaviors, would be a few factors. So for example, if you're South Asian, and you're above 40, and your father has diabetes. And also, of course, if your mother has diabetes, like when it comes to those few factors, you know, you're like, I'd say like four times as likely mm. to get the disease, right? So there are, there are a list of factors uh, that you can check. So for example, actually on, um, I haven't checked the American Diabetes Association, but I mean, since I'm in Canada and I also work a bit with Canadian Diabetes Association, they have on their website some uh, some factors on a list and you go through and you check them off and based on where you're at with those factors they have it ranked by number and then you count up the number to see you know are you like five times six times four times as likely to get diabetes um, or not mm-hmm. and so like I mentioned a few of those are you know if you are um, yeah if you're South Asian and if you're about 40 years old and if your parents have had diabetes then your likelihood of getting it is higher 
However, having said that, so within my family itself, on my father's side, and so you'll tend to notice it's uh, a lot more in, in the males. And so I have a South Asian background. Mm-hmm. My grandfather, so my, my paternal grandfather has type 2. Um, his son, so my father's brother, has type 2. And then my younger cousin, who's also male on my father's side, he actually has type 1. Um, so my dad, in an effort to prevent any sort of onset, um, became, I would say, a health freak because <laughs> he, you know, he like ate super clean and he exercised all the time. Um, I mean, unfortunately, my father, he passed away and it wasn't from diabetes. Um, it was uh, through um, an accident. Uh, but so, you know, I, I, when it comes to that link, you know, we would never know if in terms of genetics, if he would have, you know, eventually developed it, you know, whether or not he was as active and as healthy as he was, which he was. Um, so I would say, of course, they both play a huge part in it, but I don't ever think it's a negative thing, of course, to always ensure that you're eating well and exercising all the time. Sure. I know those, you know, those two things are spoken about a lot, but um, they do play a huge role. And for that reason, the American Heart Association um, was recommending 150 minutes a week mm-hmm. of exercise, which was part of a campaign I had started um, on Instagram two years ago. Yeah, so I it was for that, that reason. Yeah. Yeah. So. I don't know if you would know the answer to this question, but I feel like I've heard that the prevalence of diabetes has been rising in some parts of the world. Mm -hmm. So to me, that tells me, okay, so then in some parts of the globe where diabetes may have not been really an issue or um, it didn't really exist, but now there's like rising rates of diabetes. So then my question is why and how that Mm -hmm. even occurs? Mm -hmm. Yeah, another good question. So um, interestingly, the WHO, they they have this on their website and they spoke about the prevalence of diabetes increasing. And I think it's going to increase by 8.5% by uh, the next five or six years. And so one of the interesting things is looking at it is it's actually increasing, you know, like X-fold in countries that are middle and lower income countries. And so those are the countries where they tend to see a higher increase in it. So I can easily tell you one of the reasons for that is affordability of food. So, I mean, eating healthy is not cheap. It's it's very expensive to eat healthy, right? Like, let, let's be real. <laughs> like, if, you know, I'm going to go to the supermarket and pick up some spinach and some kale, <laughs> you know, and, and a few other greens and, and vegetables. And, um, and by the time you're done and you, you see your bill, you know, you're at least, you know, about a hundred bucks for a week or something mm-hmm. versus very easily going to take out and grabbing something quick on the go. Most times it's related to, um, low income, um, you know, families, families not able to afford food, right? Proper food. And so you see actually more and more of that happening. And um, that's been an issue. And that's been prevalent, I think, in the United States for a while. But why we're seeing more increases of that in places where you weren't seeing that before is if you've noticed, 
There is also introduction of those fat of certain fast food franchises to those countries, right? Mm-hmm. So certain countries that always ate super clean before are now getting introduction. You know, globalization and everything, right? <laughs> and now getting introduction to those fast food uh, franchises, and now people have the choice. And the means to go, you know, buy oh something yummy and new and cheaper、um, versus how they were eating before, and so you start to see the levels,、um, the prevalence of diabetes increasing, and people who actually get diabetes increasing, right? So、um, I think that's a huge. That's what is playing a huge role in it.、Um, the fact that food affordability is is getting increasingly more, you know, difficult, and also time, right? We are also living in a, an environment that. It's super fast paced. We we there's a lot of stress, right?、Mm-hmm. And because of the fact that majority of people、um, in those situations or or getting diabetes are in low income households, most times they're probably working two or three jobs. Now, if you're working two or three jobs, even forget being able to afford.、Um, Healthy food. It's also the time, right? It requires time for you to prepare the food. It's much faster for you to go grab something, you know,、um, at McDonald's, for example, and head back to work than it is for you to first go buy the food and then prepare it and then take it to work, right?、Yeah. So I think those are some main reasons why we're seeing that increase in diabetes prevalence. I can see how that ties into the. Assumptions that people may have about people with diabetes as well.、Um, if a lot of lower-income families have diabetes, and the main source of food is fatty foods, right? There's all sorts of, I guess, stigma and just、mm-hmm. stereotypes that you know. Even I've heard of when it comes to people who are diabetic.、Mm-hmm. You know, it's、yep. not just that you you eat a lot of sugar. It's I don't know a lot of various things. Yeah, there are a lot of things. I mean, and that's why I've actually seen this several times online, which was, it was really you know disheartening when I saw it.、Um, for example, I saw a post on Facebook. So there was this、uh, study that came out not so long ago talking about having a vaccine to treat diabetes. I mean, whatever the treatment for type one diabetes is in years to come, it may very well be from immunology because it is an autoimmune disease. But what was so awful to see is in the comments under that post on Facebook, the really nasty things that lots of people had to say, and also the, their ignorance, sh- you know, shine through because the 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 article was relating to type one. Now, you know, whether or not you want to say, you know. People are unable to afford proper foods for type two, but that has nothing to do with type one. Like I mentioned, type one, it doesn't matter.、Mm-hmm. You know,、um, your body is killing itself, right?、Mm-hmm. And so people were very nasty on that thread, and you know, they were saying things like, "Oh, why don't you just stop eating sugar? You know, why are you so fat? You know, why are you so irresponsible? You know, why are you so ridiculous?" And they got really, it got really nasty on the thread.、Mm-hmm. And then you know. That's where the diabetes community started to come in and and had to start like defending themselves, defending you know their friends and their colleagues and their peers who had diabetes, and so that is what you know that's one of the most、um, saddening things is the stigma behind it, because not only is it that okay you know people can't afford you know proper food and that's one reason, but like I mentioned, there's also the genetic component to it, so you can be super skinny anyway and still. You know, and still have diabetes, and then people are like super surprised. They're like, "Oh, but you're not fat,、mm-hmm. so why do you have diabetes?" Right? They're very confused by it. 
Um, but it's the fact that there's a genetic component as well as environmental component. There are usually several different components when it comes to diseases anyway, right? And diabetes is no different. Mm. Um, just because people think, oh, you know, let's describe it as a sugar disease. They don't, you know, seem to care. Some people don't seem to care to want to understand more and some people just don't know better. Yeah. I think that's interesting because I think when we think about certain diseases, there's a certain image that we could kind of tack on to it. But it yeah. seems like with diabetes, there is this image, but it's largely non-representative of the whole diabetes community. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that is so true. Yeah. Like anyone can literally have diabetes and look just like any other human being. Exactly. Yeah. And so, for example, my my dad's dad and my dad's brother, they both, they're not obese, mm-hmm. right? And obesity is one of the, you know, factors that contributes to diabetes, but they're not. They're just not obese, and they have diabetes, and they have type 2, yeah. right? So they don't have type 1, they have type 2, but they're not obese. So there's probably a huge genetic component to that. I mean, I will definitely say a bit of lifestyle, just because uh, South Asian food is very greasy as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there there's an interplay of factors that are involved. And so I hate when people jump to these conclusions and start you know attaching these stigmas to people like they have no idea the difficult lifestyle they're going through and quite frankly if you think about it like the cost that these people have for medication and for lifestyle change it's way you know it's way more burdensome than them trying to go to the supermarket for kale and spinach Mm -hmm. right like if we want you know to be completely honest like they'll shell out a few other dollars for kale and spinach if you have to compare that to the cost for insulin these days which is actually quite horrendous it's really sad (laughs) and you know other medications right it's you know you look at you know, you weigh the pros and cons and you look at it and you're like, okay, this doesn't make sense, right? There's been people that are like dying because they can't afford the insulin. Like it's actually exactly. a super exactly. large, like a huge yeah. issue Didn't because it so many people like, just aren't. Super yeah, high. it's been like just rising because they just gouge those prices ridiculously. So like, of course, if they could somehow not have diabetes, I'm sure they would. <laughs> like if, exactly, if they could buy kale right? instead of like, insulin, I, no they would love to. This. <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah like, it's not, you know, yeah, no one chooses to walk in and say, oh, like, let me have some diabetes today and I'll you know, <laughs> be on these medications for the rest of my life, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think about this often, too, and not just with diabetes, but a lot of um, illnesses, people attach responsibility on the individual a lot like mm-hmm. you said like no one walks in a store yeah. and they're like oh i'm gonna get some diabetes today and then let me <laughs> right. just add on yeah. the cost of insulin and i'll be set to go exactly like no one right. chooses that but no so in your opinion having done this work and you know a lot about it and i mean obviously you can you're talking about it in the canadian context as well so mm-hmm. you've yeah. done like the 150 what is it hours a week Minute. Minute, sorry, not hours. Wow, that's a lot of hours. <laughs> I know. I'm like, no one's doing. I'm like, some people struggle to get five minutes. I'm like, no one's doing 150. Hours. 150 minutes a week of exercise, and then there's you know just eating, trying to eat healthy, eat as healthy mm-hmm. as you can, all those things. So those are, I think, very individual based decisions that people can make. But what are some, mm-hmm. I guess, higher level um, policies or I don't know institutional things that you think could be implemented to help people either prevent or manage their diabetes? Yeah, that's that's a good question again. Um, 
Policy-wise, I think, yeah, that's really, that's difficult. But I know right now in Canada, um, can uh, Diabetes Canada has a campaign that is ongoing. They call it 360. I don't know the details about it. That's mm -hmm. probably as much as I can tell you right now. But um, I've done advocacy work on behalf of people with diabetes. And one of the things that we've been trying to get implemented and changed for people with diabetes um, at... I would say at the provincial level, so Ontario province is equivalent to states in, mm -hmm. in, the, in the United States. So at a provincial level, we've been going, talking to, you know, the ministers and um, so we call them members of parliament here, MPPs, and getting funding so that certain, um, certain things are being covered. So for example, right now, it's not, so a few of the things that we've been fighting for have been more um, for treatment and also for um, understanding more than uh, prevention per se, right? And so that's uh, number one is a, a program called Kids in Schools. And so one of the one of the biggest things is, you know, if you might not have thought about it, of course, a lot of kids will develop type 1 diabetes and although type 2 diabetes is known as an adult disease they also it also manifests in, in kids and so one of the things that we've been trying to get um, change is having uh, teachers being um, trained in understanding the needs of students with diabetes and that's because you know sometimes the schools they have rules about not eating in class and things like that mm. or not being able to take breaks but that's actually uh, resulted in a few very uh, sad situations where the teachers did not understand that the student actually needed to take, for example, you know, like, uh, like a sugar pill or something because they were going low and they would have fallen into a coma and some kids have died because of things like oh, that. That's terrible. Um, yeah, it's extremely sad. So we've been um, advocating for things like that to be implemented into school. So that's like, that's actually, that's finally taken effect right now. That's one thing. Um, another thing is these uh, monitors called continuous glucose monitors. So like I was mentioning before, um, especially in type 1, um, also in type 2 people, but you know it's even more drastically so in type 1, they're unable to regulate their own blood sugar. And if you take, for example, you know, say for whatever reason, um, you, know, you take a dose of insulin and it wasn't, you know, it, it was slightly miscalculated, your sugar can go either too low or still be high. And so the issue is with that is you have to, it's a constant guessing game, right? There's nothing mm -hmm. to actually monitor that. And so there are these monitors now called continuous glucose monitors that can monitor your glucose level. So you have it attached, you know, it's in your arm and you have an app and you can actually see and, and track, you know, oh, you know, this is, this is the level of my glucose. I need like this much insulin. The thing is about those monitors is that they're, of course, very expensive, right? Mm -hmm. Not everyone can afford them. So that's another um, that's another issue that, that we've been advocating for is we're asking the government to cover the cost for those people who have glucose monitoring. In terms of prevention, though, there was one program that our, so our provincial government, Ontario, um, they put some money into and it's an app and it's an activity app so it's called carrot rewards and so what it does is it um so that company has partnered with um places like diabetes canada and the whole premise behind it is to have quizzes about diabetes you know very simple quizzes mm -hmm. but educational ones about diabetes and then what they do is they track 
you know, your activity levels, and they give you points based on that. So it's like an incentive to keep active, right? So that's one of the ways in which they were trying to do some sort of preventative measure. Now, I haven't seen um, any publications on that recently in terms of how effective that has been. I mean, of course, the app itself, you know, they have said it has been effective. <laughs> I mean, for obvious reasons, <laughs> but I don't know truly how effective it has been within the diabetes-specific population because the app is not just for people with diabetes; it's for the entire population. But they do, you know, they do partner with, you know, Diabetes Canada and you know probably like Cancer Care Ontario and things like that. So different, um, different disease-related um, organizations. And so that was something else that the government was uh, trying out. They were testing out, and that was more on a preventative level. So those are a couple of the things we're trying to get implemented within our provincial government, right? It's like looking at um, looking at getting the teachers trained in school so that kids no longer have to go through um, difficult uh, difficulties in class, and and sadly not ultimately you know resulting in death because of something simple as education. And then also having people being covered for these glucose monitors that can also save their lives, right? And avoid them from going into a coma. So that, that are, those are a few of the things that we're doing at a provincial governmental level. Yeah. I'm, I guess I don't know what the U.S. is doing. I don't know if they're doing yeah, I'm not. Yeah, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure what's um, exactly happening in the U.S. just because I've been more paying attention to the Canadian landscape. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. <laughs> Actually, I know there was one thing in the U.S. though. Um, I think it was in New York where uh, the mayor was trying to ban the sugary drinks, right? Oh yeah, that didn't mm -hmm. fall through. Exactly. Yeah, that fell through. <laughs> um, yeah, but it's still something that's just like constantly being fought because a lot of people are like, "Oh, you can't take that away from us." So it's uh, it's one of those exactly. like pushbacks. It's constantly like that. But I mean, for a while we were able to get. I think we got rid of like the massive, gigantic size beverages. Like mm -hmm. New York City does not have those. Other cities do. So mm -hmm. it's like small you mean, like, things. These big. <laughs> the, <laughs> the, if we huge. reference Parks and Recs, the child size um, <laughs> beverage, which was the what 152 liters or something ridiculous, oh whatever God. that <laughs> drink was. Yeah, I I remember reading about that and. People were like angry because they were like, "Well, like, I don't know, something about choice and I don't yeah. know." Yeah, um, and I, I don't know. I feel like the more I'm like hearing about you know diabetes and just all this stuff, I'm just like, you know, it's interesting. I feel like when I, in, in public health, at least, I hear diabetes and prevention in one sentence, but mm -hmm. I feel like the mm -hmm. prevention work is. The prevention work is largely focused on the individual choices that people have to make, but it seems like there are so many mm -hmm. other factors that go into it that you can't control, like the exactly. genetic and, factors yeah. and the, yeah. the cost of food, you know, and all that yep. kind of stuff. Yep. And then, yep. and then there's that clinical aspect where there's, I feel like a considerable amount of reach, research going on there. So then I feel like people mm -hmm. are just getting comfortable with, oh, if you do have diabetes and it's manageable, so you'll be fine. Yeah. And you know what, too, it's, um, so that's actually why I didn't, when you asked that question about policy, I didn't bring up the, you know, um, that being a possibility of governments banning things just because I saw how it did not work mm -hmm. <laughs> in the U.S., right? So I was like, yeah, I'm not sure if that's going to work well to take choice away. Although, you know, sometimes, you know, um, I'll just kind of 
you know, if I go off on a tangent when it comes to vaccines, I kind of think otherwise, but <laughs> yeah, you know, um, you know, I don't, it's, it's difficult to take choice away. Um, although that is honestly one of the only ways, if we wanted to talk about it from a preventative point of view, to do that kind of thing, right? Yeah. Because it's, it's either you do that or you start to supply um, middle, low income people with, um, uh, subsidies or something for, for food, for healthy mm -hmm. food, right? Where they're getting some kind of help to actually be able to afford the type of food they should be eating. Yeah. Um, and then that again is gonna, of course, that leads into politics and economics and whatnot, because yeah. now you have to shuffle money around and where, where are the tax dollars coming from for this? Sure. Right? And so that goes up to another level of it. And it, it's a difficult um, thing, but obviously it's, it's all, it's dependent, right, on the burden. Like, it is the burden on the system. So, for example, I think in Canada, I had the numbers here. Um, in Canada, the burden on the system is, is massive. It's like um, $2 billion or something like that, wow. right? And so that's why they wanted to implement this 360 plan, which unfortunately I can't really tell you much about because I don't <laughs> okay. know much about it. <laughs> um, but uh, they're looking at they're looking at ways uh, for prevention. I'm just not sure what exactly the preventative measures are that they're sure. they're asking for. But yeah, I mentioned the other ones that we we're working towards and getting certain things covered in terms of management. Yeah. Um. Not so much prevention. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, is there anything else that you think would be useful for people to know about your work or your research or anything else? Yeah, I think, so this is one thing I always want to leave, or at least ensure people um, get a grasp on, even if, you know, if they haven't caught on to anything else I've said, is that people think diabetes, like I mentioned before, is this really simple disease, and if you get it, it's okay, you can live with it. But I mean, you know, number one, think about the cost uh, financially um, to your life. It's not easy. It's not easy to start affording insulin, and then, you know, perhaps these monitoring devices, and then if you're not on insulin, you're on some other oral medication. I mean, all of these things add up, and most times it's so expensive that people have to choose between eating and buying medication. Right? So which is it? Or keeping the lights on and buying medication, right? So that's one thing. Of course, there's the psychological aspect of it, which is a whole other, you know, um, side and issue to deal with, so, you know, getting the stigma from society and all of that. Um, lots of people with diabetes also have depression and mental illness, and I don't think there's any surprise to that. Even more so is that, so like I mentioned with people uh, who have type 1 diabetes, is they can fall into a coma, right? So that's more of like an acute um, sort of um, complication to the disease where that's something that can happen very quickly and lead to death. The issue I've seen with a lot of people I've spoke to with type 2 diabetes and interestingly, interestingly enough they have been people of South Asian descent, right? I'll have conversations, for example, I'll be in an Uber and my <laughs> Uber driver, you know, is of South Asian descent and he starts to ask me what I'm doing and I tell him uh, you know, I'm studying about diabetes, and he's like, oh yeah, I have diabetes. I'm like, okay. Then the conversation goes, and he's like, oh yeah, you know, I don't understand why my doctor wants to see me every six months. Um, mm -hmm. I'm fine. Like, I took my insulin, and I'm good, and now I'm better. And then I ask, okay, so do you, like, take your insulin every day or whatever medication you have, as the doctor recommends? And he'll say no, like, oh, I took it for the first month and I'm good now. <laughs> and I'm like, no, man, <laughs> this is just not how it works. 
<laughs> you know, like there's a reason why you're on this. And people tend to take it for granted, right? Because the symptoms that they get from diabetes, it goes away if they're on the medication. But just because your symptoms go away does not mean the, the disease is not still inside of you doing wreaking havoc in your body. Mm. And so the biggest thing is people don't realize the secondary compli long-term complications are really awful. Like people get, uh, you know, uh, they get neuropathy. So they start their, their nerves going to their hands and their extremities and their feet and their legs. They die right? Mm. They start dying. And so many people end up with limb amputations because of it, right? Yeah. So they get limb amputations because of it. People go blind. It's one of the leading causes of blindness is diabetes, right? 40% um, of strokes are due to diabetes, right? Heart disease, a lot of a high percentage of heart disease is also due to diabetes. So all of these things, and people don't realize it. So sometimes if you hear the numbers, you know, about people dying from strokes and heart disease, a lot of times those are actually because of diabetes, but they're mm -hmm. recorded as death by stroke or death by heart disease. Mm -hmm. It's not recorded as death by diabetes because diabetes is like a whole host of diseases, right? Yeah. So people won't say, oh, you know, you, oh, she died because of diabetes. They'll be like, oh, she died because she had a heart attack or she died because she had a stroke. But most times you look back and it's linked back to diabetes. And I think it's really important for people to like take it seriously and not think you take your pills for a month. You know, you no longer have the symptoms of being tired, being thirsty and going to the washroom. Um, and so you think you're, you're cured and you're better. No, because things are still happening in your body. And then, you know, let's say 60 years later, suddenly, you know, you're going blind. You lose feelings in your, you know, your feet and your hands. You have to amputate them. You get a stroke and you have a heart attack. So I think it's really important for people to take the disease seriously. Yeah. That's a really important message. Yeah. And that's the episode. Thank you to Krish for talking with us. As a reminder, you can reach her at beyond.the.ivory.tower on Instagram. <laughs> and resources for this episode, as usual, will be on the website. As a reminder, if you have any questions, you can always reach us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram. Thank you to all of our listeners and supporters for helping this podcast run, and a special thanks to Cordell Gloss for producing our music. Thanks for listening.